Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs had between covering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Sam Andrew. And today we are going to be looking at the state of Ontario's liberal leadership race, which is, um, uh, it's happening. And you could be forgiven for not noticing because we've been in the midst of a federal election and all of the candidates have been out involved in the federal election, but uh, it's going to be heating up in the coming months. There are going to be some debates. There's going to be some votes coming up. So want to get into it. Um, we will be speaking uh, this week with Kate Graham, who has been on the pod recently, but is the first candidate to say yes to a leadership interview on Ontario Loud. Uh, we love you, Kate, and we love the other leadership candidates, but we will love you even more when you sit down with us. Reminder that we are doing deep dives on the policy prescriptions of any candidate that wants to come in and talk to us. We've already done one with Alvin. We'll be doing one with Kate. Uh, But the floor is open. If you are a person running for the leadership of the Liberal Party and you have a policy or a vision that you believe in deeply for Ontario, uh, we'll give you a platform to talk about it. But I'm wondering if we can reflect for a moment, I guess, on where the state of the race now, the policies that have been put forward so far, where we think things might go. So the race, by my count, has about five candidates, um, Stephen Del Duca, Michael Coto, Mitzi Hunter, Alvin Tejo, Kate Graham, and Ottawa lawyer Brenda Hollingsworth. For a brief fleeting day, Arthur Potts. We want to get into these candidates, but first it might be reviewing how one actually goes about becoming leader. So to recap, quite simply, you need to win the majority of delegate votes at a leadership convention, which is going to be held in March of next year. To make things a little bit less simple, You get these votes by electing supportive delegates from local ridings across Ontario. Each riding sends 16 delegates to this convention. These delegates that are voted need to support a particular candidate. Each riding sends 16 delegates, and there must be three women, three youth, and three men in each. So basically, the campaigns need to run at least 16 people in each riding across Ontario with the appropriate mix of age and gender. So it gets quite complicated and requires a lot of people organizing. To make things even less simple, when these people go to the convention and vote for their candidate, they're free to vote for whomever they want after the first ballot. Uh, So just because you go supporting one candidate, if that candidate drops out, or even if you just change your mind after the first ballot, you can vote for whomever you want. They are actually joined by a lot, like hundreds of unelected delegates. So if you are a past party president, a past elected member, think someone like old MPs, uh, federal MPs. Basically, any liberal with any sort of major position comes to this conference and has a vote too. The last thing is that the candidates need to raise $100,000 to even get onto the ballot, and they need to do this by December 2nd. That is the cutoff for new candidates in the race. So we might expect to see some more candidates joining the race before then, uh, but they have a lot of fundraising and a lot of organizing to do to get to that point. November through February, there will be a series of debates across the province leading up to the leadership votes in February. So in February, all the ridings will be voting and set on their delegates to send to the convention, and uh, the convention will be in March. So that's the process. We also covered this process on a couple episodes so far, but now that we've seen it play out a bit, I'm curious for what we think this process says about the party right now, and what does it mean for the race and the candidates at this point? Uh, I'm going to start by uh, talking about money. Um, I think the $100,000 threshold to get on the ballot is higher than it's been in the past. And I think that's a signal that the party is uh, in need of money and is looking for somebody who has the ability not just to get elected, but also to raise money. And I think that comes with uh, downsides as well that I think have not necessarily been discussed or highlighted to the extent they should. 
$100,000 from uh, grassroots donations is difficult to achieve. Um, and because of the rules that have been set out for these are elections, Ontario rules, before you actually declare your candidacy, there are basically no rules around taking money from people. You can't give out tax receipts um, uh, for those donations, but you could theoretically get an unlimited donation from uh, any any private interest in order to run a campaign and then declare your candidacy and simply have that money uh, in the bank to, to prepare for, for running that race and to pay your, your fees to the party and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that's a problematic aspect of the system that should be looked at. And I think the higher the threshold as well, uh, it encourages people to make use of that loophole, but also it tends to, even with a, an individual limit of $1,600 per person, raising that kind of money from a lot of uh, you know, low-income Ontarians, let's say, for example, is, is pretty much impossible. Uh, whereas even with a, a relatively low $1,600 limit, you are encouraging candidates to go out and find relatively wealthy moneyed interests to back their campaign. And I think that we need to be cognizant of that and recognize what that means for the kinds of policies that these people are going to be willing to advance. It, it is much more difficult to raise $100,000 in donations from this, this sort of echelon of Ontarians if you are proposing uh, particularly uh, redistributive tax policies, for example. And so I think this does have an impact on the scope of what is discussed in the leadership that should be recognized. Yeah, I also think like the federal election being right in the middle. I mean, everyone knew that that was going to be a dynamic, but it, I think it it put this like pause on the whole thing. And I think there was this, you know, waiting to see if any of the federal MPs would lose and then like potentially run. And now they're not obviously since um, I don't think they lost a single Ontario seat. No, they lost a couple. But I think. You do get the sense now that period is over. The camps are now starting to roll out their visions and their policy and that the race is now going to get a bit more uh, mojo. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm with you that the field feels it's kind of fixed because the rules, if you weren't already moving to get entered into the race, uh, I think it's, you know, it's a really high bar. And you saw that play with Arthur Potts saying he was going to run and then I think getting into the details, realizing, you know, he couldn't. I think it's important that we also talk about this December second cutoff date. Yeah, this is this is a key, you know, decision about the rules of the the race that was made by the party that has significant impacts um, that people need to think about. So December second is is when you have to raise your hundred thousand dollars and to get on the ballot. It's also the last day to sign up new members to vote. And so, first of all, we talked about the possibility of federal um, MPs jumping into the race if things didn't go well for them in the federal election that's just passed. I still think that that would have been quite difficult for a lot of people to do um, with an election at the end of October, pivoting to get into this race by December 2nd for a March election. It's unclear to me why this deadline had to be so close. This fundraising deadline had to be so close to the end of the federal election. And I, I guess I, it makes me question to what extent the party wanted to have people from the federal election have the ability to enter the race late. And um, I, maybe we should have someone from the party on in the future to, to talk about this. The other impact from the December 2nd cutoff of signing up new members is that you won't be able to sign people up as a result of um, them hearing your uh, pitch during one of the many leadership debates that is scheduled for December, for example, um, or any of the campaigning in the lead up to the March 2020 election, like convention where we're going to elect a new leader. So if part of the idea of these, these leadership contests is not just to raise money, but also to 
increase the reach of the party, bring in new people to the party, sign up new members. Um, it's hard to understand the theory behind having that cutoff so early in the process uh, when most of the coverage of the ideas that these people are putting forward is probably going to ramp up after the time in which new people can actually jump in and, and be part of electing the next leader of the party. And so again, it kind of leaves you scratching your head saying, to what extent did we really set this up in such a way that that we want you know to have a broad base of people come to the liberal party and be part of selecting this person yeah that is such an important point like you would think that it would be a campaign that you would have a bunch of events people would check them out and maybe choose to sign up at that point and the first candidate showcase uh is november 28th which is like a week before the membership cutoff, and then all of the rest of the debates, rural, southwest, northern, eastern, GTHA, and the Toronto leadership debate are all after. And so this is a process that advantages campaigns that are about locking down current liberals and disadvantages campaigns that are about signing up new liberals. I think that that is a, whether intentional or not, that is a policy choice to your point, Alexia, that the party has made. So yeah, I think that that is a really important thing to understand and, and underscore. Now we're going to go into a discussion about the individual campaigns themselves, but I want to give you a sense before we do of how we plan to cover this whole thing. We have, at this point, interviews completed with Kate Graham and Missy Hunter, and one scheduled with Michael Coteau, and a request in to Stephen Del Duca. You can listen to our interview about well-being with Kate Graham, which we have released simultaneously to this episode today, so definitely check that out. It was a great conversation. We'll be out with Missy Hunter next week and Michael Coteau in December. But who are these people running to be leader? If you don't know, we're going to tell you, just in case this is the first time you're tuning into the race. So let's start with the two current members of Provincial Parliament. Michael Coteau is the MPP for Don Valley East, and his campaign slogan is Values Driven. He is a former president of the Carleton Young Liberals, where he graduated with degrees in history and political science. He's worked as an ESL teacher, web development entrepreneur, and director of a national literacy nonprofit. He was also elected twice as a school board trustee in Toronto before entering provincial politics in 2011 and has held five ministerial portfolios in the previous Liberal government, including children and youth services and tourism, culture, and sport. Mitzi Hunter is the MPP for Scarborough Guildwood, and her slogan is Strong Leader, Stronger Future. She's a BA and an MBA from U of T and has held the roles of CEO of Civic Action, CAO of Toronto Community Housing, and VP at Goodwill Industries. So she uh, has a really, really strong not-for-profit background. She became an MPP in 2013 and has held three ministerial portfolios, including education and advanced education. Next is Stephen Del Duca, who is the only former MPP in the race. His campaign slogan is the fight of our lives, and his roots in the party are deep, having served as writing president, a campus club president, a political staffer, a campaign manager, an executive council member. He was first elected MPP for Vaughn Woodbridge in 2012, and has held two ministerial portfolios, transportation and economic development and growth. Finally, we have two relative newcomers to the race, both of whom are friends of this podcast and have appeared on it several times. Alvin Tejo, who is a co-host of Ontario Loud, his slogan is For Our Future, 
He ran unsuccessfully in the last election in Oakville, North Burlington, and he studied at Queens and Harvard and served as the Director of Government Relations at Sheridan College and also policy advisor for many years to the Minister of Training College and Universities. Uh, he was also a VP of the Ontario Coalition for Better Childcare and founded Canadians for Paternity Leave. Well, he doesn't have a strong uh, history as an elected representative. He's been a community leader and he's very, very intimately familiar with government. And last but not least uh, is Kate Graham, whose leadership vision is focused on well-being for all Ontarians. As a scholar, Kate's PhD dissertation looked at the role and power of big city mayors in Canada, and she now teaches political science at Western. She ran unsuccessfully in London North Centre, uh, and is an associate producer of the 25% documentary about the underrepresentation of women in Canadian politics. Before academia, she spent a decade as a public servant, including as director of community and economic innovation at the City of London. You can listen to Kate. Uh, we have our interview up right now. So now we're going to go into our discussion of where the race is at. Okay, so maybe that's a good segue to talk about some of um, the candidates and the state of the race right now. Who's standing out? What dynamics of the campaign have struck you guys now that we're sort of getting into the meat of the race? I think um, Stephen's ground game is very impressive to me. Like you can see it, you saw it at the AGM and you can see it in all sorts of different uh, venues where you just have lots of former staff uh, and young liberals clearly in his camp and um, working to sign up more delegates uh, in a way that has not yet been as obvious to me from the other camps. And then if there's any camp that seems organized well to get delegates signed up it seems to be kate which is kind of surprising because she was you know sort of the last in but from what i am observing she also has a strong ground game so i think you know it's going to be interesting i think there will probably become an anybody but steven dynamic that emerges since he's seen as the front runner but it's pretty early so like, that's a dynamic i'm observing right now but i think it could still shift yeah and i, I think talking about steven del duke as the front runner for a second i mean he's done a really cool thing He's done a really good job at, I think, organizing current liberals. Um, he has great networks. I mean, he's been a former staffer, a sort of a lifelong uh, member of the party, became a minister. Um, he has something like 400 endorsements on his website and has done the, kind of this cool thing where if you're a person that wants to endorse Stephen Del Duke and be a part of the campaign, he'll put up your picture as like a volunteer next to a cabinet minister. And, you know, it makes his sort of campus support look really, really big. Uh, I, I really like a lot of what he's saying on pharmacare, um, and I think sort of the focus on how do you fix the social safety net, how do you have benefits that follow workers in a precarious workforce that's focused on the right things. Um, to your point, Sam, I'm not. I worry that this race feels a little inevitable at this point, and I that that inevitability is actually not the best thing, actually either for the party or for the Del Duca campaign. If there's an anybody but thing, that's it's not a good dynamic to have going to the convention. You would prefer, I think, it to be, or I would prefer it to be a little bit more about ideas. If this is sort of about certain camps of liberals or certain camps of liberals, uh, it's, it's a little problematic. If we're thinking about a message coming out of this race that is going to be matching Doug Ford's simple populist, I'm going to put money in your pocket. We need a vision that is equal to or greater than, then sort of meets people where they are. And I, I, for many of the candidates, actually have yet to see it emerge from this race. 
Yeah, I agree with everything you guys have said, um, particularly around Del Duca's uh, presumptive lead in this race, uh, as well the dynamic that will probably emerge of um, coming down to Del Duca versus someone else who uh, takes on the role of, of main challenger. And I, it's hard to say who that will um, unite behind. I think we do need to do a disclosure that um, all three of us have worked for Mitzi Hunter. So um, that should probably be said <laughs> while we're talking about this. But I think I like from my perspective on her campaign so far, um, I, I don't think we've seen her A game yet. And so I'm expecting that to come out. I think that as things ramp up, it'll be interesting to see where she takes this. But she hasn't put out a ton of policy yet. Um, and her website doesn't have a particularly um, strong sense of what is um, driving her in this race and what uh, even her vision for the party would be that sets it apart from other candidates yet. So I think uh, looking forward to her elevating her game in the coming months. Koto appears to be a strong challenger at this point uh, to take on the sort of anybody about Del Duca mantle. Uh, he also has a number of uh, strong endorsements, uh, not quite as many as uh, Del Duca, but quite a number of people in the party, including Arthur Potts, who, who dropped out in his uh, abortive leadership race of his own um, and threw his support behind Koto. And also, I think I saw a few days ago, Warren Kinsella posted something positive about Michael Koto. So, hey, there you go. Um, once you have Kinsella's support. <laughs> Popular Canadian political brand. <laughs> Though on the topic of endorsements that impressed me hugh siegel for alvin also recent yeah yeah exactly i i I was that's exactly right i I think where alvin's candidacy is interesting because he is very clearly running to expand the liberal tent and to try to reach out to people who uh, wouldn't normally get involved in these kinds of leadership uh, elections. And I think that is an obvious strategy, given that he is a long shot from a perspective of the sort of inside liberal longtime uh, party leadership, um, who is going to likely unite behind some of these other more establishment candidates. And so it's interesting to see that that dynamic take place and people like Hugh Siegel um, supporting Alvin. And uh, who knows uh, whether Alvin will be successful in bringing a broader range of people to um, to behind his campaign and into the race to try to uh, spice things up a little bit, which I think is good for the party. I think maybe before we go, though, talking about Kate for a second might be interesting because she, if we're talking about sort of who has interesting endorsements behind them, I mean, in terms of the strength of endorsements, I think she also stands out quite strongly. Like she has Deb Matthews, Eleanor McMahon, uh, all involved. Like if you're sort of looking at, you know, where some of the classic liberal organizing strength has been, Mm -hmm. uh, that's not with Stephen. It's a, a lot of it is with her. And it's a really interesting dynamic. She's the latest entry to the race. She's running a very positive campaign she's you know from southwest ontario which is not an area of traditional or recent electoral strength for the liberals which i think is important so yeah gates one to watch and that's all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening you can listen to our episode with kate graham live now go listen to it right now this episode here was a shorter episode so we could capture more of your precious attention it's live you should listen to it now go stop press pause go we do have interviews coming your way from mitzi hunter michael koto you can listen to alvin tejo's episode on universal child care it is already live and just want to say get involved in this race if you like what you're hearing or if you don't like what you're hearing there you have until december 2nd to do it and if you like one of the candidates now is the time to help them ontario loud is mixed by philip askew socials are done by aisha anwar and Harmon mundy you can get at us on twitter on twitter.com ontario loud or at gmail at ontario loud at gmail.com we will be back next week see you later <laughs>